Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now the, the mystic cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I'm reading from my memoir, Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. It's been a long road up to the final letdown I talk about in this chapter. The seeds for disillusionment had been there right from the start, but I loved my work, and I found it a fulfilling challenge to make myself useful to the Church. Mostly, the Church had been grateful. That was now about to change. Radically. This is Chapter 15, the first of three parts. Ministry in my parish of St. Stephen's was expanding. We were making new and exciting connections with the world around us. Our spirituality was deepening. We were learning to live with questions we couldn't answer and to meet God in places of ambiguity, places where love was present even when clarity was not. But at precisely the same time, our diocese was going in the opposite direction. Dismissing the very world that we found so inspirational, the Diocese of Calgary was about to narrow its vision and shorten its reach. It was election day in the diocese, and the process ground on and on. The actual voting was quick. We had recently adopted handheld remote clicking devices rather than the old-fashioned paper ballots. From where we were seated, we just pressed a button and watched the results light up the screen at the front with numbers and bar graphs that told us who had pulled ahead and who had fallen behind. It was all the holy stuff we did between the votes that dragged us down. We started with the Eucharist. We had hymns and prayers. We broke for coffee, and then again for lunch. We prayed again. We sang more hymns. God forbid we should just get on with it. First ballot, click. Next. Second ballot. Click. Next. No, we had to pretend we weren't there for political purposes. We were too pious for that. It had to be politics and prayer. We had been sitting on hard wooden pews all day, shifting from cheek to cheek while the church got hotter and stuffier by the hour. Our concentration was waning. Our patience was wearing thin. We were getting grumpy. But by the seventh ballot, as the sun slipped lower toward the mountains in the west, we still didn't have an election. We didn't know who our new bishop would be. Bishop Hoskin had quietly retired. 
The lay people who voted in a separate house or block from the clergy had chosen his successor by the second ballot. Greg Kerr-Wilson, the bishop of the neighboring diocese of Capel in southern Saskatchewan, looked really good in the videotaped interviews distributed to the delegates prior to the election, and also in the town hall meetings designed to help us get to know the candidates in the flesh. Greg was folksy, light-hearted, and seemingly open-minded. He had the beard and the shoulder-length hair of a midlife hippie, not to say, like Jesus. Surely this was their man, affable, intelligent, and by all appearances, modern. Some of us knew better. Bishop Kerr-Wilson described himself as an evangelical Anglo-Catholic, a clever rhetorical device that covered all the bases. But he was friendly with the Anglican Communion Alliance, another clever name for a fundamentalist breakaway group of former Anglicans. They had split off from the mainstream church in pursuit of a purer expression of the faith, one that, on their website, categorized homosexual relationships, along with child abuse and rape, as weakening the family ideal. Then, in the days leading up to the election, while still Bishop of Capel, Kerr-Wilson had slipped into the Calgary Diocese unannounced to participate in the blessing of a new bishop for the River of Life Community Church in Lethbridge. This was a curious thing for an Anglican bishop to do, lending credence to an evangelical church that was only borrowing from the Catholic tradition to bolster its profile by calling its ministers priests and bishops instead of pastors. It was curiouser that he would do so in a diocese that was not his own, not yet, anyway. These were telling associations, and disturbing. Of the five Episcopal candidates, Greg was, as Barry Hollowell had been before him, another wise man from the East, or from just east of here at any rate, which apparently would do. The others were a mixed bag, which the videotaped interviews only served to amplify. One was too earnest, holding his floppy Bible open in his hand and answering every question with a quote from Scripture. One was too brainy, leaving the viewer perplexed and unwarmed. One was too slick, delivering pithy pre-rehearsed statements, each one a perfect little sermonette. The only serious contender was Ansley Tucker. She was the rector of Christ Church Elbow Park, Calgary's Cardinal Parish, a congregation of power brokers from the oil and gas industry who could raise a million bucks sitting around a board table. She was smart and progressive and knew her way up and down the corridors of power, both in the church and in the world. In her interview, Ansley was thoughtful and articulate. She provided intelligent answers that showed she knew her ground and wouldn't be easily manipulated. She would have standards and expectations for the diocese, especially for how we could rethink our faith to engage the world in new ways. To some clergy, that sounded like more work than they really wanted to do. But to the rest of us, she was just what the diocese needed. After the house of the laity settled on Greg Wilson, they clung to the hem of his garment, vote after vote, as the house of the clergy, sitting just across the aisle, continued to wring its hands. The clergy were divided between Greg and Ansley, between the certainties of the past and the risk of some new way of being the church in the world, 
between the anchors of scripture and tradition holding us back and the billows of good sense and opportunity carrying us forward. We were caught between fear and faith, and there was no middle ground. The great divide in the diocese had never appeared so stark as it did that day. This was a war, and the winners would take all. They would get the kind of church they wanted, including all the pork-barrel political favor that went with it, like advancement to the bigger parishes and appointment to positions of power in the synod office. The losers might just as well start looking for employment somewhere else. Were the diocese to swing to the right? I didn't feel I would have the option of leaving. It had taken me a long time to get to Calgary, and then, having arrived, to settle. I was doing work that stimulated me, with a congregation that inspired me, and with an opportunity, as Archbishop Bothwell had predicted back in Niagara, finally to do my most creative work. Besides, my children all lived nearby. I wasn't about to throw away the work we had done to rebuild our relationships following the divorce by moving away. We met up often, and I followed with a father's interest and concern the ups and downs of their young lives. Apart from anything else, I just really liked them, and I wanted to be near them. As for Jean and me, we hiked with our friends in the mountains and rode horses in the foothills, sometimes as trail guides at a dude ranch. I owned three cowboy hats, two pairs of cowboy boots, a rain slicker, and even a pair of real rawhide cowboy chaps. Every stampede, I played country songs with the cow pies. Somewhere along the line over the past 12 or 13 years, I had become a Calgarian. Late in the afternoon, between the 6th and 7th ballots, there was no movement in the voting at all. We had reached an impasse. An Episcopal election is always chaired by the presiding Metropolitan Archbishop of the region. That meant Greg's friend David Ashdown was overseeing the proceedings. He was also the one who had placed Greg's name on the slate in the first place, as he was permitted to do by the canons. One might say he had a personal, even vested, interest in the outcome of this election, though I'm not saying that. I'm just saying... A hung election presented Archbishop Ashdown with several options. He could simply declare that there was no election, sending everyone home to pray and to begin planning for a new election sometime in the future. He could also extend the voting into the evening and perhaps into the next day. What was David Ashdown's solution? He called the election, declaring Greg Kerwilson the winner. This was based not on the votes of the separate houses of the clergy and the laity, but on the popular vote, an amalgam of the two. He claimed there was a precedent for doing this. So, with support from a majority of the laypeople, but not from the clergy, Greg Kerwilson, on June 16, 2012, became the ninth bishop-elect of the Diocese of Calgary. We all went home to our beds, some to sleep. Anglicans are people of the book. Other Christians variously describe themselves as people of the word, meaning the Bible, 
or as a confessional people, meaning they uphold a particular creedal formulation of the faith, or as an ecclesiastical people, where church authority trumps all. Anglicans, ever conciliatory, embrace all these other facets of the faith. But chiefly, for over 450 years, we have defined ourselves by the way we worship. Lex orandi, lex credendi, which means, according to the prayer book. There was a time when a world traveler could show up in any Church of England congregation throughout the British Commonwealth and expect to hear and to say the same prayers the royals were hearing and saying themselves back in the homeland. Even when national jurisdictions, like the Anglican Church of Canada, sought to update the Book of Common Prayer with new additions right up to the 1960s, dropping Obey from the marriage vows, for instance, in the 1924 Canadian edition, the Book of Common Prayer remained the standard, worldwide, according to which Anglicans worshipped and believed. This all changed in the 1970s. First, the Anglican Church of South India introduced a prayer book in modernized English. Then the Anglican Church of New Zealand followed suit, as did the Episcopal Church in the United States. Coming late to the party, the Anglican Church of Canada released the Book of Alternative Services in 1985, which included both traditional and contemporary versions of the standard Anglican services. Greg Kerwilson, our new bishop, was known as an advocate for liturgical renewal. He was trained in Neshota House, an Anglo-Catholic seminary in the United States, and was a member of Liturgy Canada, a church society founded to promote and to expand the new worship services, one might reasonably have assumed that he would be a supporter of, even a champion for, liturgical renewal in his new diocese. But that would fail to account for the eccentricities of church nomenclature, where renewal actually means going backward to some idealized past rather than forward to an undiscovered future. My personal encounters with Bishop Kerwilson after he first arrived in Calgary had been disappointing, troubling even. He seemed more interested in regaling us with stories from his own life and ministry than in getting to know us, his clergy. When he called our first clergy day, I held out hope that his public presence might reveal a more promising leadership style. Instead, he focused on a long list of things we were not allowed to do as liturgical officers of our parishes, a role that derived from his as liturgical officer of the diocese. We were not allowed to use unauthorized versions of the Bible. We were not allowed to change the words of the traditional creeds. We were not allowed to change the words used in the service of holy baptism. We were not allowed to change the words used in the service of Holy Communion. We were not allowed to use experimental liturgies without his expressed consent. I was seriously screwed. I had always made the assumption that, as priests, we were trained to be liturgists, not monkeys. Monkeys do what they are specifically conditioned to do. Push the blue button, get the pellet. Liturgists, good ones anyway, are contextualists. They ask, how do we create Christian worship that is faithful to the tradition, yet also engaging and meaningful in each unique time and place? 
My role as a liturgist was not simply to recreate the high church worship I learned in the chapel at Trinity College, nor was it to satisfy my own less formal personal liturgical leanings. The idea, I always thought, was to dig into the toolkit from ritual and ceremonial to preaching and singing and pull out whatever was appropriate for worshiping God with these particular people in this particular setting. This meant that, along with changing the words of Scripture, I also changed the words to some of our prayers in both the baptism service and in the Eucharist. I wasn't sure that having people focus on Satan and all his works was a very helpful way for moderns to understand their faith, nor did I regard the repetition of the word Lord for God over and over as constituting core Christian doctrine. On occasion, we at St. Stephen's had used affirmations of faith other than the authorized creeds. Once, following a Lenten study on the topic, we had even written our own. Liturgists were supposed to be adaptive, but no, we were monkeys. In the months that followed, the diocese would begin to appear alarmingly monochromatic. The bishop sought out postulants to the priesthood and welcomed ordained clergy from other denominations who reflected his own conservative view of the church. The ranks of the clergy were changing as more and more of the bishop's mini-me's assumed their place in our midst. I began to get the sense that some of us were no longer wanted on this voyage. That might explain why, having served on church councils and committees throughout my ministry all across the country, including those of our national church, I was invited to offer my experience to precisely none of them in my own diocese. The liberal clergy and lay people of the diocese began feeling marginalized, but it was the LGBTQ2S plus church members in all their eccentric rainbow diversity who actually began leaving the ship. They sensed that as the church became increasingly a haven for Christians with conservative, even reactionary views, the sorts of views that had targeted them as sinners in the past, it was becoming unsafe. One gay man found his way to St. Stephen's after fleeing another Anglican church. There he had shared with his new priest that he was a gay man who hoped one day to marry his partner when the church allowed it. The young priest listened to his story and then said his parishioner might be more comfortable going somewhere else. Another church member at St. Stephen's, a skilled therapist, felt a vocation to ordained ministry. I helped him begin the long process, but the closer he got, the more apparent it became that his long-time live-in relationship with another man would be an impediment. As a gay man, he was not allowed to marry his partner in the church, but his common-law relationship, unblessed by the church, was considered a sin, a cruel catch-22 if ever there was one. He withdrew from the ordination process, embittered, and then he left the church altogether. Our gay members were the canaries in the mine. The atmosphere was being poisoned, and they were getting out. Other progressive Christians, gay and straight alike, would follow them. A return to the changeless ways of the past was, in fact, changing our diocese, making St. Stephen's and my ministry there less and less tenable. 
And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that fog on blows I wanna hear it I don't wanna fear it and I I've been reading from Lost Rights, Leaving Churchland. Thanks for listening. If anything you've heard in my story resonates with your own, I invite you to share something on the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. Next time, the gauntlet is thrown, and I cast my lot on the side of the angels. Others wouldn't see it that way. They'd see it as defiance and insubordination, apostasy even. But there would be time enough to listen to the naysayers later. First, I needed just to bask in the new Jerusalem. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. It's too late to stop now. 